Hello, and welcome to the Translation Company Talk, a weekly podcast show focusing on translation services and the language industry. The Translation Company Talk covers topics of interest for professionals engaged in the business of translation, localization, transcription, interpreting, and language technology. The Translation Company Talk is sponsored by Hybrid Links. Your host is Sultan Ghaznawi with today's episode. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Translation Company Talk podcast. Today I have invited Carol Villandia to speak about language access for minority and underserved communities. It is the most fundamental challenge and the reason for the existence of the translation and interpreting services. Carol Villandia is the founder and CEO of Equal Access Language Services, LLC. She is an expert in the areas of language access policy and negotiation and conflict resolution. She provides advice to companies and organizations that are seeking to make meaningful cultural changes in their diversity and inclusion policies. Carol has set out to disrupt the concept of diversity, equity, and inclusion by incorporating language access as a key component. She helps her clients navigate federal and state-specific regulations and comply with key elements of service delivery to the limited English proficient population. She assists in the design, planning, and execution of language access plans for companies of all sizes enabling them to meet culturally and linguistically appropriate standards and abide by regulations designed to uphold civil rights protections and guarantees. Carol serves as an adjunct faculty member for the graduate program in interpretation and translation at the University of Maryland College Park and for the master's program in social work at the University of Maryland, Baltimore. Carol is the creator of Language as an Equalizer program, a program aimed to professionalize the human sciences that provide services to the LEP community and of the award-winning video Saving Lives in Many Languages. Carol, welcome to the Translation Company Talk podcast. Thank you, Sultan. I'm delighted to be here. I'm so happy finally we get to talk. There's a lot of people who know you, but there's few people who don't know you. And and for them listening to you for the first time, please introduce yourself to them uh, and tell us what you do and what is keeping you busy these days. Good morning, everyone, or good afternoon. Um, my name is Carol Velandia, and I am a social worker, an interpreter, and an entrepreneur. So what's keeping me busy these days is I am... Um, I continue to develop materials for my training on effective inclusion through language access. I want to formalize uh, this training and um, that is connected to the topic that about today, which is language access, right? I founded the company Equal Access Language Services about five years ago because I wanted to combine sort of all the different knowledges that I that I bring, right? I um, I studied psychology, then I studied business, and then I became an interpreter sort of by accident. And um, then I realized that there was this big problem with um, people that didn't speak English and were not able to successfully access medical services. That's how I started. And so this this sparked my interest and uh, I decided to study social work and all the work I did in social work, all the papers I did in social work were related to language access. And that's how I ended up creating my company. And that's where I am today. So thank you for that introduction, Carol. Uh, you have an interesting story to share, and I'm interested to hear that. 
about how you joined this industry. Obviously, you had some foundation from your studies, but uh, what motivated you to join this industry? And, and please tell us how you decided to start your company and stay within this industry. Well, it was uh, through an experience. I worked for many years at one of the largest hospitals in the U.S. in the international department. And I worked primarily, well, at first I worked with, with international patients and uh, was in marketing and nothing to do really with language barriers or language access. But um, because I needed to, well, my my the hospital wanted to sponsor my green card and um it was they needed to justify sort of like a work that was more real more more in demand or more urgent or that only i could fulfill and so they transferred me to the language access department completely different um kind of work that i did before and i ended up falling in love with it because I realized that the community surrounding this hospital was um, in need of language services. And I I began to understand this need um, and how it impacted people that didn't speak the language. So um, it was actually through one of the patients that, uh, that really I, I realized how much of a need this was and, and the impact that language access had in people. So this this patient, I'm gonna, obviously not going to say his actual name, but I'm going to name him Jose. He was uh, from, from El Salvador and he was fleeing violence in his country of origin. He was being persecuted by the gangs and he decided to come to the United States to save his life, right? And he actually took a journey that maybe many or many people know about the the La Bestia, which is a, a freight train that ends up um, killing people, really, because it's not because people jump on it out of desperation and and do the journey in, in Central America to try to come to the United States. Well, he took this train um, and arrived to the States just to be deported again. So he obviously needed to save his life, comes back again, and um, he goes to, through the desert this time. And then when he arrives to the United States, uh, he, he was able to stay, but he, after he suffered all of these different um, uh, types of violence and then uh, poverty and all these different challenges that he had just in the way to, to come to the United States, um, he gets sick and he comes to the hospital at some point and he's turned away, and that's that. This is what he tells me. He's turned away because they didn't have an interpreter that day. So by the time I met him, two months have passed from that last appointment. He was really, really sick, and it made me think of how important is our health, and how our health is our most important asset, and how language barriers can really mess with that in the United States, right? So. I was so shocked by what he was telling me because, you know, I work in, in one of the best hospitals in the nation. So I was like, how are we doing this? And uh, that really um, sparked my interest and my desire to do something beyond my role as an interpreter. And as an interpreter, you are very limited in what you can do in terms of advocacy. So I pursued further education, um, studied social work, 
became the most obnoxious student during my social work years because all I could talk about was language access and um, and the limited English proficient population. Develop every paper on this and um, and became known in school like sort of like ah yeah the language access person the language access lady <laughs> and so. But that's how it started, and then I decided to um, to create my company because I had a few clients from my interpreting years, and um, as I was studying social work, I one of the semesters I I, I went to India, and I didn't want to lose my clients here, so I created my company here and told them you know I I would like to subcontract the work they accepted, moved to India and. And that's actually how I ended up creating the company it was not to lose my my clients. And then I returned. I I was like, OK, sort of um, deciding whether or not I wanted to pursue social work or just being a business owner. I worked for a little while as a social worker, having the, the business kind of like on the side. And then it took um, strength. I was asked to um, teach about how to work with interpreters uh, for the state and and I did that I created this training and and then it became a bigger and bigger thing and so I decided I decided to become just an entrepreneur and try to combine all these knowledges into my business so it was it's been five years since I created the company but it's been really only a couple since I became like a full-blown uh, business owner. Well, you have to give yourself some credit, Carol. I mean, in our industry, especially in ALC, you come across as uh, as an expert in, in language access, and that's something that I think is a, a human right in a sense, because people who cannot understand each other cannot access basic, uh, you know, uh, basic services, whether it's health or education and so forth. But uh, I'm interested to hear a little bit about what has stood out to you from the time that you came out of academia, out of uh, your education in terms of social work and uh, where you saw and you advocated for language access until today. What has stood out to you as a significant event or evolution in this industry that basically you think about in the, whether in a negative or in a positive way it impacted you somehow? Technology, obviously. And um, the main event that has happened in the last few years when when I after I created my company was was COVID, right? And um, and COVID really impacted everyone uh, and very especially those with limited English proficiency and indigenous languages. And and I remember um, I had been only with the company sort of like not doing anything else but the company for less than a year when COVID started and I I, I was like, wow, how how can I leverage the, the available technology? And that's how I came across uh, different apps that made it possible to have 24-7 service um, and, you know, telephonic and video remote interpreting. So that, that was a big thing, a big um, point of inflection, I think, for, 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 for me in my in my business and I am sure for everybody right um, that we needed to have these services on a regular basis and um, and so I jumped on it definitely COVID because it made me think uh, conceive my business differently and uh, jump 
to jump on the new technologies uh, that were available. So, and understanding how technology is an essential piece of providing successful services 24-7, because ultimately what I'm trying to promote is that is the idea that language access should uh, ubiquitous. It has to be available 24-7. It has to be everywhere, sort of like the Purell uh, fight COVID, right? Language access should be an integral right. part of every business and every kind of effort. Carol, uh, today I have invited you to speak with me on this podcast about a very important topic. Uh, obviously, it's dear to you uh, and it impacts a lot of people in the United States and frankly, most of the Western Hemisphere. Uh, language access um, is an important issue and that continues to create challenges for diverse communities, immigrants and uh, all kinds of people who are joining the American, uh, you know, bigger, larger community. Please give me some background on this topic. Where's the problem? Uh, what solutions are available and where are we headed? Yes, well, we have a really interesting background on this because our country has never been monolingual, monolingual right? Um, since the time of independence in 1776, we have had a significant portion of the population that spoke a language other than English, right? We had about a fourth of the population that spoke German. And then, uh, so we have a really, really rich history of multilingualism. Then when the Louisiana Purchase occurred in 1803, for example, a third of the population um, in the United States spoke French. And then there was another treaty that came in 1819 uh, with Spain, the Adams-Onese Treaty that where the country acquired the state of Florida and they spoke Spanish there, right? And then later, the, there was another, yet another treaty, Guadalupe Hidalgo, with Mexico, uh, where the United States annexed the state of California, Nevada, Utah, New Mexico, uh, most of the state of Arizona, Colorado, and parts of Oklahoma, Kansas, and Wyoming. And they spoke Spanish and multiple indigenous languages. So the proportion of people that spoke languages other than English has been significant from the time the country began. And um, another thing is that our founding fathers were, were visionaries um, and they decided not to have an official language because, they, because we have been always multilingual. And naming an official language uh, was just a way to promote conflict in our territory. So having this in mind, I think it's important for people to understand this part of our history because there are a lot of um, biases and, and there's a lot of prejudice also about the fact that people that come here don't learn English. And in fact, in every time I, I give a talk here in the US, there is at least one person that asks, well, why don't they just learn English? And I think that's part of the problem with uh, our having, with us having a blockage with uh, embracing language access is because we think the solution is simply to learn English, right? So, the so we 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 need to understand that the U.S. has always been a country with high numbers of immigrants. Immigration is part of who we are. And that's the one thing that has not changed in our history is that we have always have influx of immigrants. Uh, you know, there is an ebb and flow, but there is always immigration. And um, now in modern times, how, what's the background, right? Well, the, in 1964, 
um, with the civil rights movement. Uh, Title VI was created, which specifically prohibits discrimination on the basis of race, gender, and national origin. And national origin is a proxy for language. And this means that um, any program that receives federal funding is required to provide equal access to those programs to eligible citizens, regardless of their race, religion, or national origin, right? Then in 1974, the Supreme Court case, Law versus Nichols, ruled that uh, the San Francisco United School District was violating the civil rights of the Chinese ancestry students by denying them meaningful opportunity to participate in public education programs. And then fast forward that to uh, 2000, President Clinton issued then Executive Order 13166, which is a guideline for organizations to design meaningful language access. And recently, as recently as 2021, the, the government issued um, yet another executive order. It, this time is 13985 which is focused on increasing equity in all federal programs and sort of to remove all the barriers for the underserved communities. And it promotes efforts to remove the systemic barriers and provide equal access to opportunities and benefits. So we have um, not only a very rich history of multilingualism, uh, but also um, pretty robust um, um, laws and regulations, not to mention, and I forgot to mention perhaps the most important one is the Americans with Disabilities Act that also ensures the right um, to interpretation services for deaf and hard of hearing communities. So, so that's the background. But the problem starts with, with, with us, right? Thinking that we that there is only one solution and not understanding the the complexity of our community and the diversity of our community and not having tools to actually include them effectively effectively. And that's why I created that training that I mentioned earlier. Thanks so much for setting the stage, uh, Carol. Uh, that was very detailed and uh, very in-depth, And but that that's eye-opening. Um, as I said, uh, I know you're very passionate about language access and, and to make sure that people receive information in their own languages. Uh, then basically, that's tearing down the barriers. Can you give me a sense as to where this problem emanates from today? Uh, I know funding, you, as you mentioned, has significantly increased. Regulation is playing a major part here. Um, and across different levels of government and uh, access, uh, across different sectors or industries, we see that there is a lot more awareness about this. But where do we see a persistence of this problem today? Excellent question. Um, so you mentioned funding. And I want to, to describe that part of the problem with language access and the, the impact of lack of language access is quite invisible in the sense that is is that it's hard to measure a, um, or impossible rather to measure a negative, right? Like what happens if there is no language access? So, so a lot of this, um, a lot of a lot of this gets unmeasured. So, let me describe at least part of the problem in healthcare, for example, which is a, perhaps where mm, there is better document documentation and research. A healthcare accounts for a fifth of the U.S. economy, right? between 25 to 40 percent of healthcare expenditures are considered wasteful spending. There was a study done by Donald Berwick and uh, Donald, um, sorry, and uh, Andrew Hackbarth, and they describe 
that this spending comes from at least six different factors, but the majority the majority of the expense it comes from uh, just poor healthcare practices, among which is not providing language services uh, or failures in uh, care delivery and care coordination. Right? There are, they mentioned six different categories, but these two these two ones are the ones that I I want to um, talk about because that's where things like patient safety um, are are involved, right? And language access is a key part of patient safety. I'm not sure how how um, many hospitals realize this, but um, but I hope you know I hope they begin to realize how patient safety and language access go together. Um, and just a parenthesis here: language access is usually put under patient uh, satisfaction or under some kind of administrative role, right? And I, I really think that if we connected patient safety and language access, we would probably avoid some of this spending. So anyway, this this um, this accounts for billions of dollars a year in wasteful spending. And the interesting thing about what they mentioned in this article is that the majority of all these expenditures come from just 5% of the patients. And these 5% of the patients are usually the patients that are underserved and the ones that have language barriers. So if we don't pay attention to the pro to this problem, we're going to have even more wasteful spending. So, so we many people are perhaps very concerned about the expense that language access is, but men, but they fail to realize that there is a bigger expense without language access. Carol, uh, about that, uh, how does lack of language access or without having access to to this specific service, how does it affect the minority community? Um, what does it mean as a direct impact to them? I know you mentioned that there's no studies and it's hard to measure that, but what are some of the, you know, the visible and obvious things that could happen if communities cannot get basic healthcare or education or government services uh, available to them in their own languages? Well, for clarity, there are studies. What what there is what um, I meant to say is that people fail to measure what happens without language access, right? But there are studies about the impact of language barriers. In fact, if you are limited English, you are four times more likely to experience severe temporary harm at a hospital. And that's why I was thinking and saying that it is a patient safety concern. Um, so a person without English, um, it's worse off than an English speaker. So four times more likely to experience severe temporary harm at a hospital when compared with English speaker. They are also more likely to um, have false longer um, lengths of stay uh, and lack of compliance, which is where a lot of the problem uh, comes from. Because uh, in preventive care, they just don't feel that they want to go to the doctor because the doctor doesn't speak doesn't speak their language, for example, and um, and so they they don't comply and their problem becomes worse and worse. So they their disease that's chronic, for example, uh, gets to be critical, right? And so they end up costing more to the healthcare system when they come back in. It's it's too late or it's too critical, right? 
Um, there is there is there are other aspects in other industries or in other kinds of public services. For example, if you are if you don't speak English, you are more likely to confess to a crime you didn't commit, right? Because there is no constitutional right for a uh, limited English proficient person to have a language interpreter during an interrogation, right? So that is another impact. And not to mention the impact on education and the new the the, the new immigrants or the children of immigrants that um, have language barrier, how that impacts their education. And let me also ask you about the impact of language access uh, on the host communities in terms of economic uh, participation of uh, newer immigrants coming into our country. If they had more language access, would they be able to uh, participate more in, the, in our economy by finding better jobs, by contributing uh, to solve uh, problems that they cannot solve due to language problems themselves. And I'm not just talking about the contribution of the host community or the American community, but also of the immigrant community, the minorities that are coming in. Oh, yes. Like if um, if we were to have more tools, language access tools, we could take full advantage of their uh, knowledge acquired in their countries. We have a lot of immigrants that come to this country that are experts on something, uh, but can't um, express or or can't um, use their expertise because of the language barrier. I was just talking to a friend yesterday. She is a very involved in ed education and advocacy in, a, in education. And um, she was telling me about this precise problem, how there is such a lack of uh, teachers, for example, uh, in the US. And her sister, who is a teacher, she comes from Chile, is is a you know a professional teacher she could join the workforce she um she uh, my my friend owns a bilingual school and but her teacher can't can't be um, a professional teacher here because of the language barrier so we were talking about how this is impacting you know not not only our society but all the professionals that come here with ready knowledge to to uh, put to work but they can't Carol, let me, uh, we talked about education. Let me actually uh, ask you to, to give me some details on that uh, and add some context. Can you tell me how does language access uh, or lack thereof manifest itself in the education sector? What type of impact it has on students, their parents, the teachers and, and the school environment as a whole? Okay. Well, I, I first of all, I must admit that this is where I have the least amount of experience, uh, but I'm going to tell you from, from that experience and some of the research I've done, but we have the, first of all, we have the largest number of immigrants in the world. About 44 million people are immigrants in the U.S., right? And that is just as big as the country of Argentina. The children of these immigrants, the people that, that um, come with different languages, will face significant challenges in their education um, if they are limited English. And um, because, you know, they will fail to understand teacher instructions, they will have difficulties associated with reading comprehension, writing, passing tests, so they might end up being miscategorized to, to begin with, and their education might be, you know, delayed. Their performance by, might be um, mis-evaluated uh, because of this language barrier, right? As you say, language barrier would not only affect the teachers, but the parents cannot be part of their education because they might not, they can't understand uh, what uh, what's happening. So 
And you know how important it is that the family gets involved with the child, the child's edu education. So it affects also the parents. And, um, you know, I think the teachers are doing the best they can to overcome this gap. And, and I, they, I think there are significant efforts and a lot of teachers that are interested in this topic and overcoming this topic. And they, they, um, they end up becoming almost social workers because the families um, have so many other needs and language barriers is just one of them. And so a lot of the teachers uh, get really involved in the children's education, but also involved in all of the problems that that their new the situation as immigrants um, brings along. So, so they are also part of this uh, problem as a whole. Um, not, not part of the problem, sorry, part of, of uh, the composition of the context of the, this, uh, this issue, right? Um, so yes, that's how, how language barriers impact uh, education. And education is the foundation of our society, right? So it's, it's Absolutely. Ba basically a place where we should pay attention to. So the, the, while we were still talking about that and how it uh, affects people, how the, this problem manifests itself, I know, Carol, that your expertise and your background lies in, in uh, healthcare. So besides education, it's not just healthcare. So many other services and delivery of these services depend on language medium, as you just mentioned. So and, and the pandemic being such a recent event that's still fresh in our minds, how does this problem actually affect the healthcare service delivery, the, the medical society as a whole, the, that community? How do they handle with the, the how do they grapple with this problem as a whole? And, and is there a solution in sight? Um, as far as healthcare, for example, we um, I think that uh, they, they there are a lot of um, um, good good tools for for healthcare, right? Um, starting with legislation, well, we have Executive Order One Three One Six Six that details how to implement um, a language access plan, basically, or 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 how to um, implement Title VI, basically, and, and it helps hospitals understand what is their, their requirement, the level of responsibility to the limited English proficient population. So they, they have that available, right? Um, and the, um, the, the technology and the industry has been a part of uh, making it possible for the hospitals and, and the healthcare systems to deliver this service quite successfully because of technology and um, and that's a big, big part of making it um, a 24-7 kind of service. Um, so the the tools are there, but then the the level of understanding and awareness is not there. And this is this is why I think we should um, so we currently are presenting the solution, right? This is your solution for language barriers. You have a professional translation, pro, translation, tran, translator, sorry, professional interpreters, and the industry is, is attuned with these issues, right? And they are offering the solution. Um, but I think that until there is a change and a shift of um, understanding um, from the professionals that use the language services and they become involved in the sense that they are part of the problem also. It's not 
I mean, my experience, in my experience, the way the way uh, language barriers were approached was like, oh yes, those people that don't speak English, and they they we have to solve the problem for them. But we have to understand that we have to solve the problem for for everybody. That the the, the medical community, the uh, healthcare providers are part of the problem and the solution, meaning um, they have to really understand how it works and understand that they will face a limited English proficient person or a person with a limited English proficiency at some point, right? It's not, it's not, language access should not be conceived as something that maybe one day um, somebody will need it, but as an integral part of any kind of effort, any kind of training, um, especially when we talk about uh, corporate training and diversity, equity and inclusion training, and we never get to talk about language barriers as if they didn't exist, right? We have to train people, uh, uh, healthcare professionals on this, right? And in fact, um, shameless plug here, but this, kind of, this training that I described, effective inclusion through language access, I. I uh, proposed it to the University uh, of Maryland for for the different public service professionals, you know, doctors, nurses, social workers, dentists, pharmacists, and um, and lawyers, right? The future the future professionals, and several of those schools accepted the program and we are going to teach it in spring 2024. And I'm so excited because that's where we need to start changing our consciousness with regards to language access is at that level when the people are training to be professionals. So that's part of the relief that I see inside besides the technologies and and um, and but the other piece is, is um, for the people that with limited English proficiency that understand that they have a right to effective communication and advocate for themselves. We do a lot of advocacy on their behalf, but I wish we would tell them, you know, you have this right advocate for yourself because if they knew they had that right i can guarantee you they they would be more vocal about it there are plenty of resources online so what we did at equal access language services was to create a tool for you to have a one page of everything you need to know about language access so we have important definitions such as language access language justice language rights and links to all of these definitions. We also have the relevant legislation around language access, so Title VI, Executive Order 13166, the Americans with Disabilities Act, and all the uh, most recent legislation also on indigenous languages, as well as uh, tips and training on how to work with the limited English proficient population, how to work with interpreters. So I'll provide the link and for anybody that's listening to the podcast, they can go and download this tool, which will take them to all the different links available. Hey, Carol, congratulations on, on uh, that initiative to, to um, you know, raise this awareness for future professionals. I think that's a very noble initiative and, and I want to congratulate you for that. Uh, but staying on the on the topic of language access, uh, when we talk about it, there are so many other services that depend on language access or understanding. Can you elaborate on which ones are affected, which services are affected due to lack of language access? 
and and while we are at it, the second part of the question is which communities are at highest risk of being left behind due to lack of language access? Okay, and let me. So the first one is what? Sorry, would you mind repeating the question? So besides healthcare and education, what other services are affected due to lack of language access? So for example, social welfare, there could be uh, armed services. There could, there's so many government services that could be affected, right? And yes. the second All part of that is, services, yes. mm -hmm. exactly. So once you answer that, the second part of the question is which communities are at highest risk of lack of language access? Yes, yeah, so all um, language access is, a, is an is an issue or a need in all across all public services, right? And so we didn't mention the court system, right? It is a key a place where language barriers could be a big problem. Um, as I said, many people uh, confess to things that. To crimes that they did not commit because they because they didn't understand what was going on in the interrogation room, right? And I have a few examples of of men that were uh, in prison for years. Um, I don't have the exact numbers right now, but I just remember reading about this project uh, that is aiming to um, to overturn those convictions. So in the justice system, there is a big need. And even though courts provide interpretation services, uh, there is a part of that of the process where where there is no obligation to provide interpretation services. Uh, and that is in the interrogation room, right? And that is a key piece of how a person gets convicted. So during interrogation, many people have just confessed to to something they didn't do because of lack of understanding and they end up, they end up in jail. So that's just one public service. With the police, for example, that's another public service that needs to have language access at all times. And I think they, they do the best they can with uh, telephonic interpreters. And then there is, um, Social services, as you mentioned, a uh, big need for for language language professionals because again, because of the amount of immigrants coming every year to this country, uh, there is not only linguistic barriers but also cultural barriers. And this is where my social work degree came so handy. Is like uh, understanding that that the families of immigrants sometimes don't don't know very frequently they don't know what um what are certain what certain rules they need to observe and they and they end up in big big trouble because the because the difference of in laws right so um it breaks my heart to see families that are separated because because of because of lack of understanding of a cultural aspect of the in the US that they didn't they don't have in their countries and uh, you know they end up in big trouble um i you know there are many examples of this and and uh, i don't want to go down that rabbit hole but that's just another service so all public services religious services and the communities that are most affected by this are not only the the people with limited english proficiency but the people that speak indigenous languages um and right now I'm thinking of Central America and people that that um, that are coming from Guatemala and Mexico with other languages other than Spanish that get miscategorized as Spanish speakers because they come from Guatemala or Mexico 
and um, and they don't receive the help they, they need. Also, there is a lack of professionals, professional interpreters in those languages. So I think they are the most um, at risk are the indigenous communities that speak indigenous languages. This podcast is made possible with sponsorship from Hybrid Links, a human in the loop provider of translation and data collection services for healthcare, education, legal, and government sectors. Visit hybridlinks.com to learn more. Let me ask you about some issues that go beyond the direct impact of language uh, access. We know that it is very common for family members, including children, to provide interpreting in healthcare settings. How does that affect families and communities? I mean, it, these people, first of all, there's issues with privacy, but then there's also issues, uh, you know, things that they, they shouldn't know or they shouldn't be exposed to. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, I mean, they fail, people fail to realize that if you ask a child to to interpret highly complex vocabulary, that interpretation is not going to, to be accurate and not to mention, as you said, the trauma for the child. Imagine a child having to interpret for their mom um, that she has cancer or an awful disease, right? And um, thankfully that didn't happen a lot in the hospital I used to work for, but it did happen. And I saw um, this problem happening with a, with a family that I think spoke a Thai or some language that there was not available at the moment. And there was this, this child interpreting at an eye clinic and I mean, though that vocabulary is something you study for. So asking a child is to interpret is tremendously unfair for the child because you put them in a position to, you know, uh, to hear things they should not be hearing. And also, you don't do well by the patient um, because the patient is not going to have the level of information that they need. And you're not going to be do doing well by the doctor either because the information coming back to the doctor is also going to be deficient. So we hope that 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 we can get rid of that issue. That we understand the impact to to children, patients and and providers. You mentioned this earlier, Carol, that there seems to be this assumption that people should uh, understand English or the people understand English by default. And when they look at foreign languages or uh, languages of other people that are non-English, they assume that funding should be allocated for languages of highest demand, highest volume. And in some cases, several priori priorities fight for the same number of dollars. So you have, for example, language access, but at the same time you have problems such as security, environmental uh, protection, and so forth. When decision makers think of language access, how can they justify allocating that funding to this specific priority, which is language access? How does it compete with other priorities? Yes, well, I think the the problem needs to be understood from, from the equity perspective, right? And, and um, I think that this is what the latest executive order um, to advance equity is so important. Um, I think that, for example, if we consider the $102 billion that are spending wasteful healthcare or waste, wasteful in, uh, expended, uh, expenditures in healthcare because of language barriers should sort of ring a bell in, in, uh, in the decision-making process of like where we should allocate the the, the majority of the funds, because if we have all this money, $102 billion in wasteful spending, why don't we invest much less than that amount 
in solving the problem of language barriers that account for part of this wasteful spending, right? Um, and the the other thing is, um, you mentioned how this allocation gets um, or, or it gets put towards the languages with highest diffusion. I, I think that if we if that we we need to invest actually in in promoting the professionalization of interpreters in indigenous languages, for example, which account for for the most uh, disadvantaged population, right? We should probably invest in indigenous languages more so than than Spanish and and Mandarin and other languages that are um, that are already kind kind of set, right? Um, I think that these hidden costs in healthcare and the idea of providing better, better quality of services will, will have a positive economic impact, right? Um, and being that healthcare is such a large part of our economy, uh, where we can have the, we can also have the highest economic impact here, right? And um, we can change, this is where we can change our practices and, um, the funding should go proportionally to this service. I, so I, I'm a big, big advocate to investing in healthcare, but that's not to say it shouldn't go to education or 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 the court system. But you know, healthcare is where. We, remember, I conceive our health as the most important asset. This is all we have. You, you know, especially immigrants. All they have when they come here is their body to work. So they need to be healthy, and that's why I promote investing in. in um, in healthcare, these resources in healthcare. Thank you, Carol. Um, language access is, as you said, not just a priority for the public sector. All aspects of life depend on it uh, somehow. Private sector is chronically affected due to uh, lack of language access. In fact, uh, most people in the private sector assume that everybody speaks English. Um, customers of large companies don't get communication in their languages. Uh, what is the private sector's role in ensuring language access for users of services and products? Hey, I'm so glad you brought this up, Sultan, because this is exactly what we're focusing focusing on in my company is to try to bring language access beyond the public services and, and as you mentioned, um, underscore the, the need for language access in, in the private sector as well, right? So as I mentioned, we have adopted the framework of diversity, equity, and inclusion because the private sector, the private sector is very invested in such practices. Uh, I, I I bet you have heard about diversity, equity, and inclusion ten ten times before you hear about language access specifically. Um, so we are trying to disturb that concept just to include language access as a missing component, as, as a key component that is missing to these efforts, right? Because with 29, approximately 29 million people in the US that don't speak the English language, um, the, the private sector has a tremendous opportunity to design language access plan and make this population op a part of these uh, diversity, equity and inclusion policies, right? Um, they the private sector has this opportunity to attract a growing population of immigrants and that will purchase their product and use their services, right? So language access is not only a social justice issue. It is a great differentiator and a competitive advantage if you have it in your business. Um, so this is what we want to know, be known for at Equal Access. It's sort of like uh, 
the companies that the companies uh, perceive us as the the people that can bring this opportunity to them, right? Um, because we're, we, as I said, we will be increasing social justice and we will provide better services, improve the quality of those services, meaning we are going to um, underscore the, the professionals behind these services because one of the things we're promoting is quality, high quality interpretation, high quality translation. We're educating our clients in what it means to have to, to have linguists that are qualified, right? So by integrating language access in, in the public sector, we are going to be helping different fronts, the professionals, the limited English proficient population, as well as the business in, in, in this case, right? So they will be doing well by doing good, basically. So it's a win-win for everybody. Absolutely. You you talked about the different laws and executive or, orders and uh, the types of regulation that exist today. Um, are they enough or more regulation is needed to guarantee language access as a critical human need? Okay, so I think um, there are a lot of, of uh, regulations and laws. Maybe we don't need more laws. We need to 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 be compliant with these laws because the laws are there but people don't follow them because perhaps the consequence is not really clear right so let's say you discriminate on the basis of language you make and you and you provide um, critical service and you receive federal funding then the consequence if you commit a language access violation would be to to defund your program. Well, that really has never happened, and I'm not advocating for that to happen. But what I'm what I'm trying to say is that we do have enough laws, but they don't get if they are not known by the by the population that is affected, meaning by the limited English proficient population, and they are not uh, busy placing complaints. These laws are going to be just in paper. So that's what I think we should be doing is to 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 communicate this, this to uh, the limited English, the people with limited English proficiency um, and tell them they have a right to effective communication. And when they go to the hospital, they have a right to ask for effective communication, whether that's over the phone or video or in person, they need to understand that right. And I think um, they don't, right? So, so I think there are, I mean, I'm not saying right. that we should just, uh, rest in our laurels and say, oh, we have sufficient regulation. Probably we will need better laws in the sense that we have executive orders, um, uh, but we don't have a law except for the Americans with Disabilities Act uh, that protects the right to, to interpretation services for the deaf and hard of hearing, uh, but it doesn't protect the right of uh, interpretation services for uh, spoken language. But that law is a great piece of legislation that um, that is strong, right? Executive orders can can go away with the with a, with the next president. So that makes them weak, right? Because if the next president doesn't want to have executive order 13166, he can say, OK, I single handedly delete this this uh, law and that's it. So it has to or it's, it's, I mean, not, it's not even a law, it's an executive order. So we need a stronger piece of legislation like the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, yes, but we need people to know about the, about these executive orders and these rights and promote them and fight for them. 
Carol, I'm sure you know that there is a shortage of talent in our industry. It's exacerbated by the pandemic. Uh, in, in particular, certain languages and communities lack resources for enabling language access. We are both members of the Association of Language Companies, or ALC, and they have the bridge initiative that is trying to fill that gap with regards to lack of resources. Please tell us how is lack of resources contributing to this problem, and is there a relief in sight for language access? Yes, I mean, there are there is a lack of uh, interpreters for indigenous languages, right? Uh, and I guess the relief inside for this problem is that uh, the government, the Department of Homeland Security just issued the indigenous language access plan, which is a vehicle for strengthening language services for indigenous migrants who, who are um, encountered and serve in Department of Homeland Security programs and activities. So I think um, the Department of Homeland Security recognizes the importance of effective communication also with, with the people that speak indigenous languages. You know, so I think that perhaps limited, perhaps language services providers should uh, invest some of these, some of their efforts into finding talent uh, or 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 forming the talent right educating the possible interpreters in indigenous languages that's perhaps the the relieving side is that we're at least the government uh, or a part of the government is paying more attention to this deficiency uh, carol uh, the pandemic was a good test for language technology in particular real-time virtual communications and interpreting and and your company being in that sector i think it, it benefited or, or learned about how to benefit and and put that technology to the benefit of people i'm interested to hear from you about the maturity of technology and how it is enabling language access for communities that are underserved or underrepresented Okay, so I think there is always there are always opportunities to to improve technology, and I love uh, the fact that you are in that space, and there are so many people in the language industry in that space uh, because that's like the part of my uh, skill set that's the most efficient. I'm I'm not I know how to use technology, but I don't um, I'm not very involved in the creation of technology. But I totally um, uh, think that technology of today that allows 24-7 service over the phone and through video is really uh, what we need. I mean, we need to use more of that um, because and I, it reminds me of a commercial that said if there is, if you have a phone, you have a lawyer here in, in the US. There is a commercial that says that. And I think the same can happen for language access. If there is a phone, not even a smartphone, there is an interpreter, right? So we need to we need to provide to promote language uh, access through the technology that we have available so i'm sure there are the developments in technology will benefit the language access uh, uh, or will benefit the language industry and the, and um, improve the problem with language access as as it becomes available to people with limited english proficiency and business owners right so i think uh, also it reduces cost for for people that want to offer language services but they don't want to hire uh, a person that is there or a or a number of people that are there 24/7 so 
Technology helps also with the multitude of languages because a lot of people or a lot of business owners, when I ask, well, how is your language access plan going or do you have a language access plan? Their answer is usually, oh, yes, I have a bilingual person that speaks Spanish and that's it. And so technology helps uh, overcome this concept that that language barrier is only faced by Spanish speakers. Uh, but obviously, this depends on the context where in the US this question gets asked. But in, in general, people think like, all I need to solve my language access problem is to hire a bilingual person. So technology is a beautiful offer offering to, that says, you know what, you actually can have as many interpreters as you need 24-7 in 200 languages. If you have a phone and you sign up to my services, we can offer you um, this the language access, right? Carol, uh, can you talk about the responsibility and the role of language service companies or LSPs to address the need for language access? I mean, we are the enablers of this capability for government enterprises and so forth. Your company is at the forefront of this topic. I mean, it it's trying to solve this massive uh, social uh, problem that we are facing. Please describe how does the industry fill uh, can help to fill this gap? Well, the industry has a tremendous opportunity with the with the language access framework. Um, First of all, language barriers are universal and also contextual. So every time you go out of uh, your country, you're likely to face a language barrier, right? So it, this is not only for a, a language uh, companies in the US, this could be applicable to anybody. Uh, but we need to adopt a broader framework to conceptualize our business. So we should promote the idea that we're offering language access as well as access right which is a much bigger and important framework than saying we provide translation services we provide interpretation um the problem is we're perhaps a little bit ahead of the curve as the concept of language access is not even um generalized and i didn't realize this because i am involved in language access i think everybody knows about language access but a friend of mine um from the industry um, who's an expert in, in technology and and uh, uh, app creation, um, made me notice, and also an expert on, on SEO. He made me notice that, you know, language access is not necessarily a widespread concept, and the language industry needs to make language access a widespread concept. Every time you talk about your business, talk about language access and how you are solving that problem. So if we, if we take a a bigger view of the problem, and that's how we sell it to our client, then we are changing the culture around language access. So I think that's our responsibility as, as language services provider, broadening the, the framework. I would like to learn more about the role of lobbying and gaining decision maker support for language access. I know that Dr. Bill Rivers is doing a tremendous job of, um, on behalf of the industry, has been doing it for years, and ALC has initiatives in place such as ELC on the hill that uh, we recently took part in. Uh, how would you characterize the efforts of our industry in ensuring language access? Well, let me um, send a, a greeting to Bill Rivers and a shout out. Uh, he's a, another very passionate advocate for language access and I admire him very, very much. And he's doing everything he can to, to um, involve the language industry 
in lobbying, right? And and I also want to commend you, Sultan, for being part of those efforts. I remember last year when we were in um, the Hill uh, promoting this. Uh, yet we we need to increase these efforts. So I I would describe them as as petite. <laughs> we in the sense that we all need to, the numbers for these efforts. We I really would uh, I really hope that all the members of the ALC um, attend the On the Hill event, right? Not just a handful of people that are working on advocacy. We need to understand that advocating for this right is best is the best thing we can do for our own business, right? So hopefully the numbers increase on, um, on this and that we all participate in this effort and attend to the Hill. And um, it should, and again, it should be open to all language companies, not only in the, in the United States. When we go to the Hill in the United States, we should bring companies like your company from Canada, from uh, other places in Europe, Asia, Africa, South America, because the, the importance of language access is not only local or social uh, or social justice related, it's also important for trade and, you know, a plethora of of aspects, uh, you know, in commerce, etc. So I think the more people attend the advocacy event, the more companies attend, the better picture we can offer our legislators, and the more awareness they are going to have. Carol, uh, for those of us who are in decision-making uh, positions, and and don't know what actually language access really looks like and you being an expert here, are there examples around the world where language access has been implemented successfully that serve as a good example or template for our communities? Um, well, yes. I mean, I, I haven't studied any one language access uh, plan uh, in in a specific country. And um, But I, I can tell you that I am part of the Global Coalition of Language Rights and and I am getting to interact with a lot of people from different countries um, and sort of hear what their programs look like. And I would mention that, for example, Australia has a, has really developed a, these language access efforts um, as deeply as possible. You know, all Australians have the right to communicate and engage in the with the Australian government and other essential services, irrespective of their first language preference. Um, their English language ability and their cultural and linguistic linguistic backgrounds um, it don't matter. They can they can always engage um, in the government programs. And you know, this is another country that has a rich cultural and linguistic diversity, just like the US. I think, for example, my experience in India with over 23 uh, official languages it was very positive in the sense that, well, not at the very beginning because the first uh, part of the year when I lived there, I lived there in 2016 and 2017, um, I saw signs only in Malayalam. I live in the, in the south of India, but then they, started putting signs in English and uh, they have um, they have they uh, you know they have um, English Hindi and the state language 
uh, has to be displayed with all the signage. So I, I started to see that more of that in 2017 because I felt illiterate when I was living there in 2016 because there, there were just a few signs in English. Now I would say that's that problem has been solved. But honestly, I I think the US is doing the best they can. I also admire um, Canada for the the way they approach um, language rights and language access. Um, I don't know it in depth, but and it's definitely one one of the countries I want to study in this pursuit. Um, but we have we have a lot of examples around the world about a from for multilingual countries that tackle language barriers. So I just mentioned a few of them that could help us get informed in their standards. So, for example, one of one person in the coalition, uh, the Global Coalition for of Language Rights, told me that for you to be um, a certified interpreter in Canada, you needed much more than 40 hours. I don't remember the exact number, if it was 300 hours, but it was something beyond we have here in the US. So I think that's where we, we have a lot of room for improvement is we need more training for interpreters um, and more prof professionalization of that um, role. Carol, uh, what are your thoughts and advice for decision makers that are thinking about language access but haven't prioritized it yet or for their areas of service delivery? I would just tell them you're leaving 9% of the market of you, out of your reach. Why? <laughs> I mean, yeah, there is no reason why we're not um, trying to include that market um, into our efforts. Very simple yet very effective. As we reach the end of this conversation, Carol, I would like you to say a few words about the importance of language access and the opportunities in this area for language service companies. I think that true inclusion can only be achieved if we all have equal access as a uh, the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, U.S. Supreme Court Justice said, if we want to be true professionals, we need to do something outside of ourselves, something to repair the tears of our community. Persons with limited English proficiency have been marginalized partly because their affliction is invisible. However, we can change effectively when we raise our level of consciousness around language access. So as a language services providers, um, we have to take advantage of this opportunity and try to fill this gap. And we need to create um, more spaces to train the people that, that join our industry and help our clients be educated on, on language access. That's, uh, that's what I think um, is meaningful for us as industry or the language services space. Carol, that was a fantastic conversation and uh, what a beautiful story about how you started and, and how you're involved and how you're making a difference in, in, in the lives of so many people. I'm really impressed with how you found a problem and creatively came up with a solution which is not just your business today but helps people live better lives as American residents and citizens. Language access indeed improves quality of life, as you just mentioned, and uh, I hope we can continue this conversation in the future. In the meantime, I wish you all the best with your initiatives and your drive to help people through language access. And uh, with that, I want to thank you for your time to speak with me today. 
Thank you, Sultan. It was an honor for me uh, to be here. I, uh, as you know, I, uh, you are a person I admire and I follow, and I want to thank you for the opportunity to, to bring this about and talk about language access, which is my favorite topic. Okay, it's time for my roundup of the interview and my analysis as to what has been discussed. Language access is a fundamental human need that enables people to access services and products in their own languages. It also enables communities to interact, support and empower non-English speakers. Carol mentioned that regulation governs language access in the US, but we are far from an ideal situation and too many people today get left behind for so many reasons including lack of resources, lack of funding and more sadly lack of interest. I think it is our responsibility as an industry to promote and lobby for language access across every sector and vertical. We have a few strong voices who have tirelessly advocated for language access at different levels of government. We did mention Dr. Bill Rivers and the entire ALC board must be credited for being on the forefront of language access debate. I believe this issue is not just confined to the United States population. In countries like Canada, Australia, United Kingdom, Germany and others in the Western Hemisphere must promote and support language access for their indigenous, citizen and immigrant populations because language rights are human rights. That brings us to the end of this episode. I got to speak with a great leader and expert on the language access subject and the opportunity allowed me to learn so much. I believe as an industry we have so much to learn. It means more business for us in simple words. I am hoping you learned at least one thing to apply to your business to make it better and that means I hit my goal today. Don't forget to subscribe to the Translation Company Talk podcast on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify or your platform of choice and give this episode a fantastic rating. Until next time.